Hello everyone and welcome to the Motorsport Podcast in association with Mercedes-Benz. Some things are made to cope with puddles and rain. Others deal with the stickiest of mud. And as for the snow, that takes a warm coat and sure footing. But when it comes to dealing with all conditions, there's only one thing that springs to mind. Mercedes-Benz Formatic, all-wheel drive performance in any condition. So whatever the weather or road throws at you, you're ready. To see the Formatic range for yourself, visit your local Mercedes-Benz retailer. I'm Ed Foster, and I'm the online editor of Motorsport Magazine. I'm joined today by Joe Dunn, our deputy editor, Nick Trott, our editor, Simon Aaron, our features editor, and the 1979 Formula One world champion, Jodie Schechter. Jodie, thank you so much for inviting us into your home um, and sparing us some time. I know how busy you are, so it's much appreciated. Yeah, pleasure. Before we go anywhere, something I mentioned uh, beforehand was you were our first ever podcast guest back in 2009. Um, and since then, we've, we've done a hundred, well, yeah, a hundred podcasts. So it's great to have, finally have you back. Um, yeah, I didn't know it was the first one, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we didn't tell you because you would have thought we were a bunch of amateurs. We, we, we well, still are. anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we still are. Still we, won't, we, won't, we weren't going to advertise it. Um, now, things I'm gonna, usually we have a sort of a rough script that we work through, but today I changed things up a little bit because we've got so many readers' questions um, that I've actually got six pages of them here. So I'm sort of going to pick through them, and what I've done is I've tried to organise it roughly into a timeline order, but if we jump around, uh, we jump around. So... Um, Thank you to all the readers for actually writing in and, and asking all these questions. It's made my job a lot easier, actually, <laughs> this month, so thank you for that. Um, I'm going to go straight to one from Mike Burbeck, um, and this is taking you right back um, to 1970. And he first saw you, um, he said, I first saw you race in 1970 when he was an eight-year-old boy, and he was mesmerized by your sideways style in a Formula Ford at Crowthorne Corner at Kyle Army. Does, is this ringing bells? Uh, yeah. Yeah, we've got so many questions. I can always I jump on. I was wondering. I wasn't yeah. jumping that far back, um, but yeah, yeah. So yeah. he just wanted a bit of. Um, he goes on to say how delighted and proud he was as a South African. Um, you went on to win the, win the world championship. But his question is about sort of how you tuned and prepared. Did you do everything yourself back in those days? How was it? Was it was it very yeah, basic? I, I started with a. My dad had a Renault uh, dealership. He had a Renault dealership, and I. He gave me a car to go to work and a second-hand Renault 8, and then uh, did, went once to work and came down for the first race. And then and, and that Renaults were very fast in saloon cars at the, that time. The, the works Renaults had done a really good job at doing all the modification. And so I built an built engine, gearbox, everything myself. Do, do you look back on those days sort of fondly? I mean, it must have been great fun because you were really just racing for the for the joy of it at that stage, weren't you? Well, I, I hope I was all my career for the joy of it. Mind you, for when you get into Formula One, it gets hard work. But um, yeah, yeah. in fact, it's quite strange, I think. When I see a picture of my Renault, it gives me more of a warm feeling than uh, all my other cars. Really? Yeah. It's interesting. We've, we have got a question later on about, out of all the cars you raced, which is your favourite. Was it that early Renault? No, no I, don't, I don't know if it's my favourite, but you know, I'm getting it rebuilt, actually, in South yeah. Africa. Yeah, completely rebuilt uh, or copied, should I say. Um, I don't know, you know, just I look at it, I suppose those are the days where it's, it's always very exciting getting there, you know. Um, I remember when we came over here that we were going to have prawn cocktail for breakfast. That was, you made it then <laughs> if you did that. You know. But, but it, that was, it was really exciting, absolutely, g going up the ladder. You know. who, who were the guys that you rated when you were racing the Renault? Who were the, who were the main opposition people that some of the audience might not necessarily have heard of? Well, I, it's South Africa, there was Scamport, who was the head of um, uh, Renault works teams. So the thing was possibly to beat him. Um, and I used to get, I was too scared to talk to him, and I used to get the spares manager to ask him what, what pistons are using, what uh, camshaft, and they helped us. Um, but I didn't, didn't know about anybody, I just wanted to beat everybody, so didn't, didn't seem to worry about that side of it, really. 
How long have you have you have you had that car since then, or did it disappear and you managed to discover it again? What's no, the story it disa- of that it di- car? It disappeared, and I tried to find it. I couldn't. And a, and a, and a pal of mine that was at school with me and helped me a little bit when when we were there. He's rebuilding it for me in South Africa. Are you going to bring it over here when it's? When yeah, it's I will. I, but I, yeah, the, the the regulations are different, so it probably scare me. To I, do I, it. I can actually <laughs> I can hear Nick's cogs whirring in your heads <laughs> in terms of a future track test in motorsport. Well, no, it's just I, I love I love cars that go away and come back. And we have an emotional attachment, don't we, yeah. to our cars? And but, uh, one things that we have to have a roll bar, and I used mm. an exhaust pipe, so it was lighter, <laughs> you know. And every time I came home, and I couldn't do anything to it, I just drilled more holes in it. You know? <laughs> I'm, I'm sure we'd find a class for it at Goodwood somewhere. There must be, surely. I'm sure there is. I was going to ask about your sort of inspiration when you were uh, younger at that age in, in South Africa, who, who your sort of inspiration was to get into driving. I know there was John Love from up in Rhodesia, slightly before your time, but whether there was anyone else? Uh, no, no, I don't think it was at that point. My dad had an agency. The, the, the Formula One race was in the 60s in East London. My uncle actually raced in 38 in the big circuit. So uh, when people came for the race, for the Grand Prix and the one in the middle, there was a, my dad used to say, come into the workshop and you can use the workshop. And some people stayed at the house. So it was, it was all around, yeah. So, I, yeah. D- uh, do jump in. I'm sorry, usually I can kind of see everyone in the podcast, but um, <laughs> today, I, today I can't. Um, so please just jump in. I'm, I'm not ignoring you, Joe. Um, so uh, moving into your early F1 career, um, we've got a, a question here from David Joe Klotz. Um, and this is regarding your time at Wolf. Um, what was your motivation for joining such a new team as Wolf? And then also, did the WR01 surprise you? We've got quite a few questions about the WR01 because it, it seems to be sort of, you know, a, a nice car that, that yeah. many people love. Um, well, I'd done three years with Terrell, and I really didn't want to stay there. And um, there wasn't a lot of other choices. I had to talk to Ferrari quite often. But it wasn't gonna. It didn't look like it was gonna happen. So that was an opportunity. So I said, okay, I'll come. But I want this amount of money, and I want these types of people. So I got Peter Wall, got Frank chucked out, <laughs> and we had Patrick Head. Then went. I remember going to a test in South Africa, and Patrick Head, and we just went. I worked really well, and we went faster and faster and faster. And um, but then he left quite early, which was a which was a pity because I think. Well, he says we could have won the championship probably because he designed half that car. And um, I remember sitting at Brands Hatch and saying, oh, don't go with um, Frank, he's a real loser. You know? <laughs> well, at that time he was actually. <laughs> you know? He hadn't qualified the car before and stuff like that. So. But there, I think it was a year later or two years later they were beating everybody. Yeah, hindsight's a horrible thing. Was uh, there an extra satisfaction in knowing that this, this team was growing? at that time and you could influence the way that the, the company and the, the well, car was when i joined them they hadn't qualified for half the races i they asked me to drive the car in watkins Glen, and i remember it, i'm just patrick says i would have been in the middle of the grid and they didn't qualify so then it was but we had 20 people in the team ross braun was in the workshop and um th- that was really fun because it was tightly packed and in fact uh, we wanted to test. I sent a Telex to Old Man Ferrari and said, can I test? And we were the only car that ever tested other than a Ferrari on his circuit. And yeah, he said yes. Wow. And that was before the season. And then we went to Argentina and won, not because we were fast, but just were reliable. And yeah. Yeah. So, no, that, so the Wolf tested a Fiorano in yes, Ferrari's backyard? Yeah. Bef- before, the, before the Grand Prix season started. That was yeah. a hell of a telex. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you had one of those little things that came in there, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you may not remember that. <laughs> no, 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 I, I'm intrigued by it. I wonder what you wrote to convince him to allow you I to just asked him. I just went and said, can I, can I come and test at your circuit? Yeah. Yeah. I used to do that all the time when I raced for Ferrari. Because sure. if you talk to anybody else, they give him a story they want to. And so I went there with Brenda. She would then translate it for him. Right. Yeah, because I just I'm talking to but but coming out of um, Brazil, and we were standing around. Old man Ferrari there, and the engineer was there, and then and then and he asked me through them, uh, what was it like when you car? And I said, no, the engine, the Ford engine's better than us. It's pulling away, and they wouldn't tell him. 
And I said, no, 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 I didn't tell him. <laughs> I wouldn't tell him. So because they were they were scared of him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the engine was something that I think he really was more it was proud. The thing, wasn't and it? The, probably the guy would have got fired. But I, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we, we've actually got a whole section of questions on on Ferrari. Um, but there's there's one here that's sort of part of another question. I, I might just jump in with. Um, Juan Carlos, I, I have no idea about this, so you might tell me this isn't true at all, but he said, by the way, do you recall a fast trip from Monaco to Nice Airport on the Shoreside Road with your Ferrari road car? Does that ring any bells with you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Am I allowed to ask about Unfortunately, that? Unfortunately, <laughs> <yeah>. Well. <laughs> it's all right, we've got plenty of time, James. Okay, okay. So, I'll, I'll blame it on you. I used to get um, migraine headaches. And that took us to Sindol, it was called. But the next day, it was really irritable. Anyway, a Ferrari 400 going to the airport, and you know, the road like this. And uh, so I'm going, this, and this guy pulled in front of me, and then I go like this. I go, so I just got mad. I went in front of him, put my brakes on, on that big road like this. He jumped down, I smacked him once. <laughs> He's, he, was, he has glasses, and he started bleeding like this. I thought, well, okay, they're gonna, they, I just tell him what happened, because he came shouting in French to me. And uh, straight into jail, and yeah, and nobody would take my calls, and I sat in jail like this for the whole time. They switch on the lights all the time; it's just concrete. And the next morning, they said they, they want to keep you in prison until the, the trial in three weeks' time. So now I just retired at that time. So anyway, we, I got home, had a bath. I mean, that was a real dramatic experience and opened the newspaper and the guys I met there had a whole lot of arms <laughs> that was in the cell with. Thank you. I, d I did not think the story would go that way. No, I that, was that, yeah, that was excellent. Okay. Juan Carlos, thank you very much. I, for might the have a, I might have a related question actually. A, a number of years ago I looked into um, a story about how, how Gilles would drive from Monaco to the factory in Maranello and would just go flat out all the way. Uh, am I right in saying that you, even though you obviously enjoyed your road cars, you, you would never sit with well, him or...? Well, slightly, you know, he was, he was, he liked the image of being the daredevil and carefree and everything like this. And I went up with one and I said, don't, you know, don't... don't. And he was fine until he got to about two kilometers from the circuit and then it started wheel spinning and doing this and doing, <laughs> doing all that. But he, he, wasn't, he wasn't the impression he gave. Right. He was serious, he worked hard at it, um, but he liked to be the guy and that was his downfall in fact. The showmanship side of him. Yeah, he wanted to win every lap and wheel spin yeah. and you know, that type of thing and I wanted to win the world championship and you know, that's probably why I won it. <laughs> I'm going to just jump forward to the Ferrari section because we've got lots of questions on Jill. Um, one of them is from Peter Butler just asking what it was like having Jill as a, as a teammate. Um, and there's, a, there's another one here from Bruce Allen. Um, apparently he had a funny nickname for you that was Fletcher. Why, why did he call you? Oh, there was a book called Fletcher with a, uh, some type of bird that would fly and go do things that had never been done before. And when I did a, an American series, Can-Am and that, there was a guy that called me Fletcher. So that's <laughs> as simple as that. As simple well, as that. Yeah. Um, so it's basically Peter Butler's question, then and Monty Bodkin has also written about telling us something about Gilles that, that people don't already know. What was it like having, having Gilles as a, as a teammate and, and how did you get on with him? I think you obviously got on with him very well. Yeah, I got on with all my teammates very, very well. Um, yeah, I mean, he was a real honest, naive in a way, because I think he was so, so, so much so. Um, but yeah, we were very friendly. Um, we were honest with each other. Um, and I think when you like that, you don't have fights with your, or except, I suppose, a bit different when you're so superior like Mercedes are. Then it's only between you two, but but uh, yeah, we both felt we wish must work together. We also thought the Italian press loved to get the drivers to fight. You can before that they were always putting the drivers, and we spoke and said, "Listen, we won't. We'll stick together," and that's what we did. Can I just? You mentioned that uh, part of Gilles' downfall was that he was the showman. He wanted to be fastest on every lap, etc. Did you see a little bit of your early self, your younger self, in, in Gilles? Because I mean. You were res you were renowned for being very spectacular, certainly in yeah. you know, Formula Ford, F3, F2, early yeah, F1 yeah, days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that helped me when I was coming up. Um, yeah, I didn't. I was really just wanted to w win the World Championship, and I remember going to uh, Monza, 
uh, that's when I won the championship, but during practice and the, the, the um, week before, he was putting on qualifying tyres all the time. And in, in the newspaper, was, Jill breaks a record. And I got the hardest tyres and just worked on setup, worked on setup. And I outqualified him and won the race. And, um, yeah. So, so you, you mentioned sticking together then. I mean, was there a lot of pressure um, for in Italy from the Italian press? Well, I always say that racing for Ferrari compared to anywhere else, when you race for Ferrari, you're racing for Italy. When you race for McLarens or other cars, you're race, racing for that team. That's the big difference. So good and bad, it's all over. The, all over. Did we care about it? Not really. I got the Lemon Prize three years in a row. The Lemon Prize? Worst guy to, to the journalist. <laughs> really? <Right. laughs> Fabulous. Th things have changed. Don't worry. Um, I wonder if that's still award. Yeah, the, I don't know. The lemon no, but they they, they, they respect it because I went and fetched the award. They, they oh, right. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's actually what this is sort of exactly what we were just talking about there from Rene Klaus. Um, and his first visit to a Formula One meeting was the Belgian Grand Prix at Zolder in 79. Um, and as a young boy, I had a, the experience had a, a lasting impression on him. Um, it was also your first win for the for Ferrari. Um, what were your memories of that first Ferrari victory and what did Enzo say to you and, and uh, what was the aftermath like? Um, the most thing I remember is I was leading and then there was one corner that got really slippery and I, I didn't know if there was a lot of oil on there so yeah, I had to be probably a little more cautious than I had to be but then it, it was okay and, and I won the race so that's about all I remember, I remember that and I don't remember Ferrari saying anything. In fact, when I won the world championship, he walked past me and said, hello, champion, and that was it. That was it. Really? Uh, the thing is, it probably meant quite a lot from him. From anyone else, it would have been a bit weird. <laughs> um, another sort of big name from Ferrari in those days was Mauro Forgieri. What was he like to work with? Because you, you kind of hear so many... He was obviously this amazing engineer and things, but I think he was quite difficult to work with. This is a question from Guillaume... Um, I think that's, I don't think I pronounced that very well, but I'm not known for my French. Um, it, he basically wants to know a little bit about him and also his interpretation of ground facts and kind of the effects that he had on, on the car. Well, I, I suppose I rated him more as a team manager. And, and he made things happen. That was, for me, his big skill. Um, from an engineering point of view, we didn't see eye to eye uh, sometimes. I mean, you know, there was all ground effect cars and they had the 12 cylinder, which was wide. And he had got the exhaust pipe in that little section. And actually, um, Silverstone, I had said they gave me the wrong um, laps to go and I lost the place to, to Watson and it was all over the Italian press. I say the team is, say, Monday morning I want everybody, this is for, I want everybody in, in, in the office. So I spoke to Joel and I said, listen, we're going there and we, we need to get that exhaust pipe out of that thing. It's a bit obvious, you know? And so, he said, well, he said, well, why did you say this or this? And I, said, I said, well, I think uh, we shouldn't fight with each other. We've got to fight. And he said, okay. And that changed the whole thing. He said, what can we do? And I said, well, I, we want to take the exhaust out of that place. And then, sure, obviously, we agreed with each other. And we, we took it out and went to Monza, and it was like 300 more revs, more downforce. And, and in Formula One, that is more than Christmas. I mean, that is, that is something you just want to jump out and scream. And so, so that was an improvement when we got there. So he was quite difficult. So, see, he was difficult, but he made things happen, which was, you know, that's a, that's a great skill. From his pure engineering, you know, he's built some very good cars, so he obviously was good. Did the flat 12, um, when, when you first experienced it, having um, driven so many DFEs, did the flat 12 initially feel um, uh, appropriate to feel powerful enough to be a racing engine or could you feel that there were inherent issues with it i didn't you i don't think you can feel that difference you know you can't but the, the when i was, as i were brazil pulling out of those corners the the fords were pulling away from us so i thought that was it traction or was it uh, bottom end or whatever it is i don't i don't really know but yeah yeah but i suppose the compromise came, came later on didn't it in the aero with the, yeah. with the well, I, I suggested they put the engine upright because it'd be very narrow there. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't probably as strong as some drivers. That, that could, it could have been done, I'm sure, with the oil problem yeah. with a, was a problem. But yeah. Inside the air scoop, with the high, <laughs> yeah. you know. 
But it's so there's a I got a question here from Anthony Jenkins about your last year with Ferrari being so difficult. Um, the results didn't come. Do you regret not doing a Rosberg and just retiring at the end of your World Championship season? No, no, not not really, not at all. Um, you know, the car wasn't very good. I think the tyres were had other people caught up or not. Um, I felt I was always driving as hard as I could, but I wasn't as you know, Jill was beating me more often then than than the year before. Um, don't know. No, I decided halfway through the year that I was going to retire. So I didn't decide I was retiring at the beginning of the year. You know, it only went. It, it was in the middle of the year, and I suppose you gain a lot being world champion, doing the at least half the season till you get beaten. Mind you, I, I always say I I was world champion for a week. Because uh, old man wanted me to go to Imola. And I said, no, you know, because you eight years, the only thing you want to do is win the championship. And I didn't want to come from Monza and do a, a race a week later. I said, no, I don't want to go. No, anyway, I eventually had to go. And she'll beat me there. So I thought that it lasted, <laughs> it, it, it lasted a week. You know? <laughs> um, I, I'm going to rewind a bit, actually, to the pre-Ferrari days, because I, I kind of, Jumped out, jumped over lot, lots of questions there. Um, we've got quite an interesting one here from Peter Kaufman, who, uh, um, it's amazing the number of people who saw you race that have written in with questions. Um, Old people, obviously. Well, <laughs> I, I don't know about that, Jody. That's your words, not mine. Um, he, he first saw you drive at Mosport um, in Vasek Polak's 917 in 73. Um, and the memory of your power slides through corner 10, lap after lap, will never leave me. Three months later, he saw you at the same track in the M23, but he doesn't recall your driving being quite so extroverted. Is that because the two cars required... Which, which track was that? Uh, this was at Mosport. Uh, uh, yeah. That was my first race in the Can-Am car. Um, but there was turbocharged, which was lagging, and you, you had to put your foot down really early going into the corner, and then it would come, come in. It's at 1,100 horsepower sometimes, and no brakes. Um, <laughs> Apart from that, it was, uh, <laughs> it was fine. <laughs> Lovely to I, drive. I have, I have the car now. You know, I got, oh, I got really? And, and I mean, it's an amazing car. It's amazing. It's a twelve-cylinder engine. You tie it to the engine, and in front of your um, pedals, there's just a few little aluminium things like that that hold the body on, and that's your protection. I mean. No. I, I, I'm, I'm going to embarrass myself and say I have driven a nine-one-seven, not not a thirty. But the thing that struck me. Um, was when I when I looked down at where my feet were in the 917. It was a sunny day when I drove it. I could see the sunshine reflecting off of the tarmac through the the fiberglass. Yeah, I, mean. and, I, and would, I, I would feel sorry for you. I was beginning to think, <laughs> no, it, it was my dream. It was my, you know, it's dream come true to drive this car, and then all I wanted to do was get out. You know, um, I was going to I was going to ask about this 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 interesting kind of. Um, uh, I suppose mix between enjoying driving the car and enjoying winning. How, if you had to place a ratio, if it was was it fifty fifty you enjoyed driving or well, seventy I, twenty I, enjoyed winning? I, I've always said I was motivated by the fear of losing, okay. not by the glory of winning. So sure. I think that that was more my motivation, um, and that was the pressure you put on yourself, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. and the yeah. and the enjoyment of driving a car did that does that move away the more successful you get. Um, well, I think if you're enjoying it, you're not driving fast enough. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that That's was probably the pressure. <laughs> That'll I, be why I, think, I enjoy it so much, then. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, you know, the drivers always say the nice things. We didn't yeah. say it in those days. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They asked me. W there was some question, I think, for which would the drivers you'd like to have driven against? You know, yeah. and that yeah. means Fangio or what's his name. So I looked up, I looked up, the worst driver I'd ever seen. He'd never come more than like 15th. And I said, yeah, I'd like to race against him. <laughs> yeah. 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 Who, who was that driver? I, I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> having said that, I was going to rewind sort of before the Ferrari days. I've, there's a question here that, um, from Simon Hurd about, about Ferrari. It's uh, quite a nice one I want to ask. Um, did you feel the mystery of Ferrari and the sort of Enzo's offices and kind of the whole thing that went with Ferrari or at that time because you were still young at that stage I mean, you well, did not have such an effect the first time they offered me something was when I was in McLaren's and Montezemolo came up and Lauda was there and it came up and I think I was earning 3,000 pounds and they offered me 40,000 pounds and then I said no I'm you know I've got a contract with McLaren's but I didn't come out of South Africa thinking Ferrari was everything 
I think that side didn't mean anything to me, really. Um, but driving for Ferrari is very, very special. And there's, there's actually a follow-up question from Simon saying, and what did Enzo say when you, when you quit? Um, I don't know if he said anything. I mean, go, going back to that other question, is I remember when I first went in to see him, and I met a guy at the motorway, and he took me in, and, and then sort of in the middle of um, a modern, a, a door opened, and you shot in there. And then I went in, it was all dark, and there were some bodyguards there, and this white furniture, I remember, and I sat down, and he said to me, how much money do you want? And um, I said, I'm too young to talk about money, which was probably the right thing to say. And uh, I didn't get, didn't, we didn't do a deal that time, but I think a couple of years later we did. But that, if you say the, the mystery of that, that was very much, you know, Amazing. So the conversation it, it was kicked off. The subject was money. It wasn't. I, my tell, guess is he was trying to see where I was coming from. Yeah. Was I doing it for money or, sure. or what, what's the name? And and I yeah. wasn't doing it for money. Yeah. 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 I mean, I don't think I would have fared very well against Enzo in a, you know, <laughs> in a sort of discussion <laughs> like that. Um, there's uh, going from sort of one, you know, big name from Formula One to another one. Um, this is from Lucio Chiodi. Um, and he wants to know a little bit about Ken Tyrrell um, and how important was he as a sportsman, sort of man and driver, but was Ken to you as a, as a driver? Well, I think Ken's r biggest skill was being a race, you know, at the track, getting the tactics right, what you should do around the track. I think they, for me, their technology was behind because I'd been with McLarens and they, they were more advanced. That's what I felt anyway. But he was a very practical guy, very friendly. Um, very, very family-like. You know, we had dinner with them, which I would probably most teams. You, you are more friendly with your teams than with other drivers and things. Um, yeah, yeah. He wanted me to be like Jackie. I think that was the the thing. He always said, "Well, Jackie did this and Jackie did that," and I, uh, you know, I wasn't Jackie. You said earlier on that. Um after three years with Tyrrell, you were desperate to get away. What, what was it that kind of sort of broke your spirit at Tyrrell? No, I, you know, I, I didn't rate the six-wheeler. And uh, Patrick, being French, said, oh, it's fantastic, it's fantastic. And we were quite quick the first day, and then we were the same time as the second day, but everybody was going faster, and he said, it's rubbish, it's rubbish, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <coughs> and I thought the theory behind it was not right. And so I suppose that, pulled us apart a little bit and and so I, it, I knew it was time for me to go so I, I don't really think of anything more than that. There's a, there's a question here actually from David Hopkins about Patrick Depaye. Um, do you have any Patrick stories to tell is his question. Well the one that stands out, well a couple of stand out, but one that stands out is there was the one track and now this is the first year in proper Formula One and I go there and there's some S's, I can't remember which, uh, fifth gear, and I said, are you flat there? He said, quite flat, quite flat. So, Jesus, okay. <laughs> <laughs> In the dirt. About halfway through the season, quite flat was not quite flat. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a one story, that was tr that's true. And the other one, I uh, know, I won't tell you what that one was. <laughs> Sorry, his girlfriend, no his girlfriend seemed to faint. I don't know quite why. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a perfect moment. Um, just uh, for me to talk about this, um, there's a, a lifestyle thing that you can do on Mercedes-Benz website. And if you go to Mercedes-Benz, mercedes-benz.co.uk forward slash lifestyle, you, it's extremely clever. You can put in your car registration number if you own a Mercedes, and then it can tell you all the things that you can buy for it, whether it's baby seats or uh, cup holders or iPad holders. Um, it's actually extremely clever. For the number of times that I've bought something that is for an entirely different model of car from mine, um, highly recommended. So do head along to mercedes-benz.co.uk. Mercedes um, uh, I'm sorry about jump, all jumping around. It's, um, and sort of trying to take as many of these questions as possible. It's quite an interesting one here from, again, this is another question from Lucio Chiodi. Um, Lucio, I really hope I'm actually pronouncing that right after putting so much effort into it. Um, he talks about sort of your arrival in Formula One and you know how a lot of it was quite difficult. And he's, he's asking basically, as a South African, did you feel a bit like an outsider coming into this at the time, quite predominantly sort of English environment? Did that cross your mind at all? 
Well, in, in South Africa, it was apartheid at that time. And um, one British Grand Prix, there were threats to my life. And the police followed me around at that time. Um, so it didn't worry me too much. You know, I mean, I was just racing. I didn't care about anything else, I, as I remember. Um, and I didn't feel any prejudice or anything like that. I didn't care about it, actually. Did you, uh, did you ever have any problems with sponsorship or anything like that during those days of apartheid? Yeah. Well, that's what McLaren's, they didn't want, uh, their sponsors didn't want to sponsor me because I was South African. So would I have got to drive a full driver because I got a half drive the, 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 the second year with, you know, when I did one race at Watkins Glen was the first and then 73, I think I had five, five drives and why I couldn't get a, permanent drive. I understood it was because the, they didn't want to sponsor a South African. That's the, only, that's the only that I, I know mm. or knew. Um, we've got a question here from Marco Frere. Again, I hope the pronunciation's okay. It, he wants to know about uh, your win at Kyle Army in 1975 and, and your memories of that, of that race. Um, Massive crash in the last practice, going down very fast. What's well, name? Car was not written off, but close to that. Um, they rebuilt the car and put an engine in and warm up. I did one lap and the engine blew. So I started the race with a car that really has done one lap and a new engine. And I led from the second lap or third lap and won the race. So. Carl Army was a great circuit. Is that how you remember it? It's yeah. really fun. Yeah, I mean, it had some tweaks to it. The, the uh, qualifying got slower and slower and slower as the rubber came down. So you wanted to get your laps in really quickly. Um, and I always tried to run less wing than most people at most circuits. And uh, maybe that helped. I don't really know. So, excuse my ignorance, but I always thought there's a track rubbered in and got more grippy. Is that just a sort of a trait of Kyle Army? Or? I, I don't know if it was the oil coming up or what. It was, it was definitely a trait of Kyle Army. Um, but yes, you're right. I, I mean, I agree with you. Normally, when thank, as more... Thank God for that. <laughs> more, more, normally, when more rubber comes down, it, it gets grippier, but not there. I don't, I don't quite know why. Just, uh, just going off on a sort of a slight tangent, uh, I'll come back to the questions in a second. What, what were your sort of... What were your favourite tracks from a purely driver's perspective? What the, when you were in Formula One, uh, well, there must have been some that you thought you know you really looked forward to, and, and some I didn't. Yeah, um, well, we'll, we'll get to those in a second. <laughs> Monaco, I loved really? to drive at Monaco, yeah, and did well at Monaco. You know, um, I like Kyle Army. Uh, I really didn't like Austria, um, and Brazil. I didn't like either. I think it was because it went the wrong way. <laughs> the neck felt like it's going to fall off <laughs> halfway through. But I never did well at those circuits. Um, did the Nürburgring? Um, I love the Nürburgring. The yeah, yeah. yeah, I really did. Yeah, because I got fastest lap, I think, twice there. Or yeah, yeah. And, and when you first drove the Nürburgring, um, I'm presuming you drove it in something with serious performance. Well, most people would discover yeah, the Nürburgring. Another story. Like <laughs> I, I first went in, a, I think it was a Capri or something with my right. wife, and she was taking lap times, so we were going faster and faster and faster, going around, what's it? And then somebody offered me a drive in a Porsche. Okay. And so I thought, well, I for the experience. Well, I did about a quarter lap and wrote it off. And that's so. Uh, so they fixed it, and I came to drive in the morning, but I was fired. Right. So, so they said, "No, no, you're not driving it anymore." Okay. Blimey! I, t your wife I got, wasn't I in got the, the in quickest the lap that next Grand Prix, so it sort of it worked. It worked. <laughs> I felt better. It was worth the risk. <laughs> well, what was it about Monaco that you loved so much? Because it's, mm. it's as a on a Formula One car, it's it can seem sort of quite a fiddly. I mean, I suppose it's a very intense experience because it's. Non-stop. You know, I, I, the first experience I had was, you know, you got there and you thought, well, where is going? And try to sit up in the car to see where the track went. And then I remember coming in and he said, well, what race are you getting in top gear? I said, I don't think I'm in top gear. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, once you got used to it, and I don't know, I think because my style of driving, I could slide the car so I could really slide it close to the, to the, to the rails. But qualifying was everything. And, and it was quite spectacular, in fact, with Gilles and I, 
because we were going like this, was him and I, him and I, like that. And I remember touching the guardrail coming out of the corners like this. And then, you know, you had to go fast. And you can't go any faster. Well, we got to do fast. And then I was starting to touch the inside guardrail with the, with the front wheel and the outside with the outside. I mean, it got to that extent, you know. And the last lap, my front suspension, my front, that little arm there, bent like this. And I remember coming in and I thought Jill had got, got me and there was a journalist with a big camera there. I knocked the camera out of the way. So, but I got, <laughs> I got pole. <laughs> when, you're to, when you're driving to that sort of level, I mean, before you go to something like the Monaco Grand Prix, do you, do you, did you ever question yourself whether you could do that again? Because it's, it's, I mean, it's quite a, an amazing level of driving, isn't it? I would never question myself, can I do it or not do it? I just was always questioning how can I do it better that was that was always what you were doing you're thinking thinking if you woke up at night you were thinking if I'd run that s suspension or if I'd run the harder springs or something like that that was the only thought that I ever had you had thoughts of because people were getting killed one to two drivers you thought you know maybe maybe I won't come back but once you're in the car you thought about how you make it faster. Do you think you ever achieved that? You, there's an Enzo Ferrari quote that, I, that stuck in my mind where there's no such thing as perfection, only striving towards it, I think it was the quote. Do you ever feel that you got to a point where you were like, I've got no, I can't give anything more, that was? Well, I always <laughs> say there's always, there's always a percentage after that, and that mm. Monaco was a typical example. Right. You, know, you would have said, no, you can't. And then, you, well, you knew you had to. And then you went out and you squeezed some more out, out of it, you know. Probably one of my races I thought were to perfection not, was at um, Long Beach with the, with the Wolf. I led the whole way until about eight laps from then and I got a punch on my right hand front tyre. And um, I thought that was a lap that I never, you know, it was just nearly perfect all through, through, through the race. I'm still hunting for that perfect lap. Might might take me might take me a few right, few yeah. decades. Um, it's, I just, I've uh, very professionally got a, a section in these um, in these questions called random. Um, that's <laughs> just because they didn't really fit into the first ones. It's no it's no reflection on the quality of questions. Um, just before I read out your names, um, there's quite a nice one here from Alex Martini. I d I don't know about this. There was a Tom Schechter apparently in the 1930s who raced. Um, Oh, and he taught South Africa and did the East London GP. Was he any relation to yeah, yours? He was my uncle. Really? And, and, I, and I, as I mentioned it earlier, I said, my uncle, uh, Brooklyn's Riley. I've got a picture of that and my dad sitting next to the car in, in my room. And um, I remember seeing his, I think it was a leather helmet. And he told me that the auto union blew a tyre, this is a story, and went into the pits and passed him halfway around the circuit. I think it was the 11-mile circuit. At that at that time, yeah, it's amazing. So, uh, going from one um, Thomas Thomas Schechter to another Thomas Schechter, your son. Um, there's a question here from someone simply called GP uh, who wants to know about what you thought about your your son's sort of career trajectory. Um, but just before you answer that, um, there's quite a nice one here from Daryl McGrath or McGrath McGrath, um, and this isn't so much a question um, as a lost opportunity. Uh, your son was racing in the Formula Opel Euro Series in Mondello here in Ireland, and in the paddock, him, uh, this guy and his wife, uh, newly married, were watching around the back of the circuit when he noticed a man near us in a green anorak. He said to his wife, bloody hell, that's Jody Schechter. And there was nobody else around, and he says, he, to, to this day, he regrets not coming to say hello, and his wife still ribs him about it. Um, so, Jody, I, I hope you liked Ireland. It was cold, dampish September. You looked cold. <laughs> I probably was. <laughs> you know, I say hello to him if he's watching him. <laughs> Um, so it's just sort of going back to, I think first of all, I might just sort of jump in with a different question. How was it taking sort of your son through, you know, climbing up the ladder when you had done it and you knew the difficulties and the potholes? And it was my worst career. <laughs> <laughs> I remember coming back, uh, you know, won the championship, went to America, was very successful there. Coming back, I was in the same place at Brands Hatch, changing gears <laughs> at the bottom of the, of, the, of the paddock there. And I thought, boy, and then it, it was tough. It was tough, you know. Yeah, and oh, sorry, Tom. I was, I was just going to say, I mean, apart from the similarity of changing gears in the same place at Brands Hatch, were you, I mean, because you went away from the sport and you were barely seeing if at all during yeah, the 18, 19 years away. I didn't years, years away. actually, yeah. Um, what did you, that, that, did you 
feel, apart from the you just mentioned, that, that the sport had changed? Could you see how much it had changed in your absence? No, not really. Um, I, there was a point when I did, but you know, with Thomas, I was, you know, I was at the back of the paddock, you know, and and um, just doing that sort of thing. I didn't go there as world champion at all, um, and then stayed in lousy hotels because the team was staying in lousy hotels, you know, and, and I was very technical. They always said, "No, no, you can't be that technical with Thomas." So I was very technical with Thomas. I didn't really work. On his driving as much as setting up the car and trying to do those things. Yeah. Was that quite satisfying though? When he was doing well, yes. <laughs> when he was crashing, no. <laughs> yeah. But he, in the Opel, he did. He, I think he did. He won more races in, in the history of that series. Right. Yeah, he looked. He looked at that time, and then he got went into the Spanish race, and Alonso was there, and he was a, like a second and a bit quicker than anybody in a, a car that hadn't done well, the, the team that was doing the Opel. So at that stage, he looked like, you know, the next, what's the name? Um, he wasn't. <laughs> do, you, do you think it was tougher because of his surname for him? So there was a weight of expectation? Yeah, I think, I think with, with all, all people, people see you earlier, you know, so you may not be quite good earlier, and then they're looking at you and say, "Well, they're not good." But if you weren't, you wouldn't be seen at that time, you know. So maybe, but in other ways, some people could get sponsorship uh, easier. It never it would never work for me. Uh, well, talking of sponsorship, um, this is an advert in the fact that sponsorship actually works. There's a question here um, from Ricardo Toccato, um, and but before the question, he says, "I'm still eating Brooklyn chewing gum because I always loved the sponsor on his overalls." <laughs> hopefully, not the same so, piece. So, so hopefully, <laughs> hopefully not <laughs> the same. Yeah. So there you go. Sponsorship does work, guys. So go out there and support some young young racing drivers. Um, he wants to know how and when you decided your helmet design. He, he's a big fan of of, of the colours and, and the design on it. I think the colours came from McLaren's because it was a McLaren orange, although it also was a South African flag kind of. And, um, yeah, put my name on it. Well, there we go. That, that's that question answered. <laughs> um, I'm going to ask about the, the Brooklyn Association. Um, that, to me, when I, when I see pictures and I, and, I, and I look back, I don't remember seeing the prancing horse. But I, it, to me, it, you at that time was, was Brooklyn. How did, that, how did you broker that deal and have such prominence as well at that well, time? Well, you know, the overalls were yours. Right. Yeah. So, and the helmet was yours. You had to. There was a Ferrari badge, and mm -hmm. I think there was the oil badge. I can't remember yeah. and stuff. But you had free of your overalls. It was part of the deal. And you negotiated that yourself. With, well, with stake or? went to Ferrari, and Ferrari put it onto me, and then yeah. I negotiated that. Yeah. Because I was. It was one sponsor rather than lots. Because most drivers had lots of little bits, and I had just one one sponsor, which was. Again, more jumping around. So, so thanks for bearing with me, Jody. There's a question here from Agent King about who made the most resources available to you at the time between Ken, Walter and Enzo. I just wanted to preempt that with what was Walter Wolf like? Well, he, he was, he was, I don't know, he was a bigger than life, you know, and he promised everything, but if he did 70% of everything, it was more than other people, so that you had to deal with and um yeah you know it's he was he was i remember he had a lamborghini and when he opened the door the hooter went bah, bah, bah. So <laughs> people would see not only had a lamborghini but you had to look at that lamborghini so but he was he was all right at that time yeah, yeah. and in terms of working for that you know there's sort of three big names from, from the history of the sport um was there one that was particularly easier to work for because I remember they're all very strong characters, Ken, Walter, and Enzo Ferrari. I mean, you, you did choose them, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, they're all different. I didn't really, you know, when Walter wasn't, I was working for the team, which was uh, Peter Wall and Martin. He was more on the sideline, uh, trying to give us what we needed to do, to, to race properly. Ken was different. Ken was totally in charge. Um, of everything and um, he was hard to work with but friendly and um, yeah and um, Enzo was 
I loved it at Ferrari, mainly because the food was so good. Come, come you're, you're racing in England and you get this white bread with pickles on it, and you go there and it's pasta and what was I hey, man. It's a, but the lap times after lunch were always slow, it doesn't matter what happened to the car. But by tea time, it sort of came back up again. That's brilliant. I've got a uh, question here from Chris Hall that he wants to know the best three races that you drove against in your career and also the three quickest, and it doesn't have to just be F1, because um, you said that's not always the best indicator, which I think is very true. Oh, you're talking about drivers? Yeah, so they're the best, best three drivers and the, and the three quickest. They might be the same, but. Well, I, yeah, the drivers, I suppose the, the drivers you like to drive against were ones that you could rely on. Amazon, Nikki, you could go into a corner with them or, and you knew, and they were fast, there's no question about that. Um, like if J you came up to Jerry, eh, you, he was the worst because you didn't know if he was going to or wasn't going to anything. <coughs> he was just, yeah. But um, yeah, I suppose, you know, James, James Hunt was quick for a short period. Um, but you, you, I think you always looked at the car more than... The, the, you, you, if they beat you, it was the car. And <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> if you beat them, it was the driver, obviously. <laughs> I think I think he more. I looked anyway as the car. What could I do to make it go fast and things like that? How highly did you rate Tom Price? I didn't really. I know some people did ra mm. rate him quite highly. I don't really have any re recollection of that at all. I don't remember racing against him. I I don't really. Know. I have no opinion of that. Yeah. yeah. You've mentioned a few times just through the, this podcast about the cars that you said, or you know, you've got that, or you're getting that restored. Have, have you tried to get together all the cars that you raced? Is that what's going on? Or yeah, well, no, I, I'm a farmer now, so I can't afford it. But, <laughs> but when I came back from America, um, I collected. And I've got 13 of my cars that I drove. So, so how, um, how many? But that, I mean, that's quite. quite so I got a lot. Formula Ford, Formula Three. Formula two Formula Twos, one Rondell and one McLaren. Um, I've got a fo Formula Five Thousand, and I've got um, Tyrrell six wheeler. I've got two McLarens, nineteen <coughs> and twenty three, Ferrari, Porsche. I think that's. And do you keep them? I keep fully operational and um, sort of as yeah. best you can sort of yeah I can hear the cogs wearing again well <coughs> I yeah, I, 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 <laughs> yeah no I just wonder which you know the, the, when the when you feel the fire burn inside is there, is there a car that you'd love to just jump in and do a few laps of the of the it's, 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 uh, it's my road car <laughs> my, uh, my favorite road car is uh, the A class AMG Mercedes and it's very on brand, the A40, Jody. The A45. <laughs> no, it, it, yeah. it is. No, I, yeah. I have an arrangement with Mercedes, but they don't give me enough cars. So, <laughs> so, so, so I went and leased that car and paid for it. Yeah. And uh, it's just... It's a rocket, it's, isn't it? It's a little rocket. Oh, it's yeah. a lovely little car, you know. Yeah. I don't want to drive old cars, you know, because th that car's so much, so nice. You know. yeah. do, I mean, do you do... You do do you use the races at all? Do you get to take them out much? I'm just thinking, I'm no. sure there's some listeners and viewers who would love to see you in XYZ and the Ferrari or the Porsche. Uh, I've taken them out to some charity. I've taken them to Bahrain when they had all the world champions there. And we have car fest at our, at our what's it, and I take two or three of the cars down the circuit there. How, how was that Bahrain reunion? Because it was an amazing roll call of names and yeah. car. You, you were there, weren't you? Yeah. Yeah. For me, I think it was the only time that I felt that since I've retired that you've been honoured as world champion. Because, you know, at some time it was hard to get a, a, a pits ticket. Although Bernie was trying to teach me a lesson because I probably insulted him. <laughs> but, 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 um, but um, you know, I, go, I haven't been to a race for three years. And when I retired, I didn't go for ten years. Because... You go that in the back, you know, it's, you're not part of it anymore. And it's like tennis, you go there, if you won that, they'll put you in a special box and everything. That doesn't happen in, um, in Formula One. I think that's a really interesting point, isn't it? I mean, it's been left, you know, not left to, but it's, it, the fans and, and the media have promoted the glory of Formula One's past more than Formula One no, itself. I, think people, people you know. I must say, I always enjoy the cars that 
when I was growing up, I loved. Mm. And so those were the ones before me. And they have an, a nicer feel when I look at them. And I think the guys that liked our cars were probably when they first went to circuit and, and saw them. Yeah. When you did retire, did you find it hard to switch off and, and be doing something totally different? No, I, I, I didn't retire because I was, had something to do. I knew I had to retire. And then I did try to organize a World Series of the same cars and worked on that for a year and then organized some um, MotoGP races at Donington. And then I saw this advert in a magazine, which was a simulator for, a, for shooting guns, so a, a live on live guns on a paper screen, and you stop. And I went over to America and started that company on the kitchen table. So that kept me busy for 12 years. Mm. Well, there's, there's a couple of questions here about Laverstoke, which is obviously what you're doing now and what you went into after that. Um, first of all, it's Chris Hall who asked the earlier um, question about the three quickest drivers. Um, he he asked, "What's your organic beer like, and do you do volume discounts?" <laughs> 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 there's, lots, there's, there's lots of lots we, of your organic we beer. We don't sell volume at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's there's one from uh, Max Johnson, which is he's basically interested in the decision to become an organic farmer right. and the history and motivation behind that. Because I mean, it was a complete departure from what you were doing before. How on earth did well, it? That's come my third about? career. I'd yep. like to say it's my fourth, but the beer's lovely, just to answer your question. <laughs> it, won, it won the two stars in the Taste Awards twice, in the, and the, um, the lager won the best organic lager. But they are lovely. I, 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 and, and Le Manoir's taking them now as well. I think also Tudor Glen are also taking them now. Yeah. And, and do you do volume discount? <laughs> we we had them in uh, were doing really well in Waitrose and Sainsbury's and it was in retail for five years and somebody complained because we had our listen Mr. Leverstoke on there. Yes, I and remember this. Yeah, because yeah, so there was a, there was a cartoon a sort of children's cut drawing on the front of the. Well, beer. it was Mr. Leverstoke. We yeah. had it on all our brands. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and they took it, went in this meeting, which is just completely ridiculous. Came back and said, "You've got to take it off. You send me a." a new, uh, what's the name, within three weeks, a new label within three weeks, and we're going to tell all the licensing boards and everybody to take it out. And the big supermarkets had signed up for it. So I sent them a new one with Mr. Leverstoke going like that. <laughs> <laughs> and I, because... <laughs> because for, for those of you listening, there, was, there might have been a finger involved. It was, it, it was so stupid because they eventually said to me, well, what happens if a three-year-old takes it and drinks it. And, and it's, that's how ridiculous it was, because no teenager is going to be wanting to drink it with a Mr. You know, as a baby. Well, my answer was, it's better than fairy liquid for them. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, uh, just going on to sorry, Max's question. Um, what, how, do, how did the farm come about? Why go into that as your third or fourth? I, was, I always did a lot of exercise, and I always was a foodie. So when I came there I bought from America, I bought 530 acres and said, okay, I'm going to um, produce my own food for myself and my family. And that's how it started. And then, stupidly, it became a passion and I say a disease. And um, I went to seminars and read books. I got about 500 books, a lot of them from the beginning of the last century, because I felt that was the best time for natural farming. And I bought the farm next door. That was 2,500 acres. And, and then just went everything and I had the finance to do that which is probably negative and positive but I did everything I put a lab with a doctor in microbiology a doctor in chemistry studying soils so I went to every degree from the soil right through to the plate uh, put in the abattoir did everything and um, it was great produced fantastic products financially it was a disaster because it was, it did, you're it, saying past tense though which is always good news so but the disaster. It was a, it was a disaster. But it's well, I'm, I'm, I've simplified it out. And you know, food, you've got to do volume. doesn't matter how much you charge. I mean, a, a, a chicken probably cost me 10 pounds to produce. And you can buy one for two pounds at Tesco's. So, you know, and, and it takes me how long to prepare a chicken where they're doing, you know, 100 a minute somewhere else and we're doing one in a half an hour type of thing. That's... That's, you have to do volume, and that's what we do now with the mozzarella and some charcuterie and stuff like that. Ten pounds of chicken, that, they must be absolutely wonderful chickens. Well, we, we run ours for over 100 days, 
an, a chicken in the store will be 36 days from an egg to that size. Never been outside. Fed with antibiotics and all sorts of things. So there's a difference and it costs you that much. People think it's ridiculous to do it, but if you're doing it properly, it costs you that. Yeah. Um, <coughs> amazing. Hey, sorry. 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 Yeah, I was just going to say, you mentioned your careers just then. I'm, I'm interested in how you see yourself. Do you see yourself as a... If you look at your life, do you regard yourself as a... As a <laughs> <laughs> Especially after the last one. <laughs> Racing driver, businessman or farmer? I don't know. I, you know, I, I think I don't get nervous to take challenges and, and I think I can do anything. Um, and so when I want to do something, I go for it. I don't try and look at, well, what is it going to take to get there? I just say I'm gonna get there, and then I do it, which is a very hard way to do it. Um, I don't know. Is it possible? Say, is trying to have fun. That's all. Can you say which which of your careers get, has given you the most satisfaction? Um, you know, I think the racing, the, the satisfaction also is public. Then you go to the company, and it's very exciting. You're growing like that. You know, last three years were twenty nine, sixty, hundred million dollars sales. So it's very exciting, you know, you in the back there producing new technologies, doing stuff like this. It's a bit like Formula One from that point of view. And you get the same satisfaction from that as you did from racing, but it's not public. Um, and then the farm, well, it was very satisfying until I realized how financially bad it was. And then it's been very, very hard to try and turn that around. And so we we, we hopefully going to turn it around this next following year. Are, are there any skills, skill sets that you've been able to carry over from one career to the next? Yeah, absolutely, oh. absolutely. I think Such everybody hopefully does that through their through their their careers and through their age. But yes, you know, Formula One was very much uh, the quickest technology advancement in any industry, even more than wartime. So when I went into America, um, I could move technology faster than anybody, and also preparing for. A, a sport, let's say, and racing you were preparing for a sport, and that we were making simulators that were teaching police and military how to get ready to go to war or go into a situation. The basis of that is the same as getting ready for a race. And so those were the two lessons that I learned from, from, from that career. So we're very sadly running out of time. Um, I'll just take a last question here from, from Anthony Jenkins. Um, who says you've made a success in two fields since your retirement. Did you ever consider going into team ownership in F1 or Indy cars? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go. Definitely not. <laughs> so I, I was going to go back a little bit. You mentioned earlier on that you tried to set up a World Series for a single-mate car. I, I, I've not heard that before. Tell yeah, me, yeah, tell yeah, me yeah, a little bit more about what... And, uh, yeah. I was trying to get the Cosworth uh, V8 into... I think it was a Capri or Escort at that time. Sounds and fabulous. And then have it all over. Here. <laughs> and I, I didn't really know what I was doing. I was talking to television, talking to the manufacturers and going like that. And yeah. eventually it didn't happen. So was it kind of a, uh, had you seen what happened with Pro Car and BMW and you thought that, that color, was it that caliber well, of drivers? It was the American series. Um, okay. What was it? IROC. Mm, That's right. IROC, I did yeah. IROC a couple of years and I thought, yeah. why don't I do a, a worldwide IROC? Yeah. So I did indie drivers, Formula One drivers, sports car drivers, and do it on a worldwide basis. That was yeah. the idea. Yeah. I'd watch it. Before we switch <laughs> off completely, do you have any fond memories of the um, Escort Mexico Challenge in your early... In your, <laughs> I, I would say, I'd say Simon has been he's desperate this. <laughs> to, ask, to ask this question. Since he's he's smiling. Know. You must have some happy memories. <laughs> I know, there was some quite fun memories. Uh, was it Gillian Fortescue Thomas? She was a lady that was in there. And I read Brand's hat. She went sideways. She wouldn't let me pass. So I just kept my foot flat and pushed her sideways down the hill. <laughs> <laughs> like this. And then the other time I blew my car for crashed it. And we went to have a beer afterwards. And somebody lent me their car. So I'd had a beer. Should I go back there? And then I went back and raced. 
shouldn't say happy that. Days. I suppose it was only one beer. Yeah. 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 And it was non-alcoholic. Organic non-alcoholic. Yes, exactly. Organic and non-alcoholic beer. Thank you so much, Jody. It's extremely kind for sparing so much time. Thank you, Simon. Thank you to Alan, as always, for doing the sound. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Nick. And thank you for Mercedes for actually supporting these and making them possible. We'll see you all next month for another Motorsport podcast. Until then, bye-bye for now. Some things are made to cope with puddles and rain. Others deal with the stickiest of mud. And as for the snow, that takes a warm coat and sure footing. But when it comes to dealing with all conditions, there's only one thing that springs to mind. Mercedes-Benz Formatic. All-wheel drive performance in any condition. So whatever the weather or road throws at you, you're ready. To see the Fullmatic range for yourself, visit your local Mercedes-Benz retailer.